Good morning. Good morning. So here I am sitting up here. <laughs> thank you all for coming. And thank you, Galen Rushi, for your support and apparent <clears throat> faith in me. <laughs> and I want to thank my dear Dharma friends for your support. So, uh, as uh, as uh, Galen, uh, Gail, Gail <laughs> explained, this is a, a way seeking talk where I <clears throat> reintroduce myself to you um, and how I came to practice in. And also, I want to say how I chose the subject of no separate self and karma. So um, <clears throat> I, I, I always enjoy hearing about uh, people's backgrounds. So I will start by telling you about my background because from the moment I appeared in this life, every little moment of experience or little building blocks that constructed this person sitting here that we call Maite. I was born in Recife, in the state of Pernambuco, Brazil. Recife is a, the furthest point northeast. If you look at the profile of South America, it's the furthest point northeast. <clears throat> uh, we lived in Olinda, which was, is a city just outside of Recife, um, a beautiful colonial hill town that today is uh, protected by uh, the World Heritage Society. And um, Olinda means, oh, beautiful. <laughs> uh, our backyard was uh, lush and green, tropical flora visited by wild parakeets. And uh, I got these images from the internet. They're not that great because I didn't have time to crop them and make them really pretty. But just to give you an idea, um, these are parakeets, orange, bright, orange, bright, yellow, green, turquoise, blue, pale blue. Because <laughs> parakeets come from somewhere. They don't come from a pet shop. <laughs> Across the street in the park uh, were three toad wild sloths and they have long flexible bodies very long arms and legs and they hang from the trees with their three toes they are gentle friendly vegetarian creatures and they are mesmerizing oh, they have a small head and dark eyes framed by these black slanty marks. 
and um, they're mesmerizing. <laughs> they're mesmerizing to watch because they move in absolutely continuous, super slow, silky smooth, slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, a series of events happened um, before the age of five um, where I became <clears throat> um, fascinated with death. Uh, I was put in school and learned to read and write before the age of four <clears throat> as a means to distract me from my mother, who I had become anxiously attached to, and, and that was a problem. Uh, a schoolmate of mine is um, named Jung. His mother died, and um, I fixated, sympathetically fixated on him. Um, and so uh, from night to day, I saw him change from a lively... <clears throat> cheerful boy into a stunned and uh, withdrawn boy. <clears throat> and I suddenly felt connected to him as I imagined his grief at losing his mother. Someone outside of my family, a kind of a stranger, because uh, I was a classmate, but being the youngest child in the class, I was off his radar. And uh, uh, I remember feeling that it was odd to carry someone around in me that I didn't really know. <clears throat> and then my next door neighbor died, uh, an elderly woman, and I wanted to see her. But my parents would not allow me to see her. And... I thought it was just so unfair because if I saw her, I would uh, understand death and I would know what happened to Chino's mother. <clears throat> and next, our dog, Calais, disappeared. And from the way everybody was behaved, the adults were behaving, uh, they were hiding something from me. I thought, oh, he too must be dead. Um, and then my nanny took me to uh, visit a dying relative in her village in the interior of the country. And this was my first ever train ride. And it was a very long journey. And we finally got there and uh, walked up a long rising cobblestone street. Uh, and coming to the house, to the doorway of the house, there were people standing and kneeling outside the house with their hands pressed together, praying out loud. We made our way into uh, the house, which was crowded, full of people. Also, some people kneeling and standing. There were lit candles everywhere. Uh, we, we 
squeezed into the room where her relative lay on a bed. Uh, a priest was there and an altar boy uh, praying uh, all around the drone of prayer. And uh, the priest is gesturing over the, the, the relative performing the Catholic rite of extreme unction received at death. Uh, my nanny uh, kissed her unresponsive relative. And for me, as a four-year-old, this was just tremendous, uh, very mysterious, and kind of awesome. Uh, soon after, I was taken to another room and put to bed. And then later on, I was awakened, and we came back home on the train. And when I got home, I thought, things must happen all at the same time in different worlds. <laughs> and I thought it was strange that it all happened at once at the same time. Because here I was at home, everything seemed the same but somehow not the same. Um, in the cathedral uh, around the corner from our church, uh, our house, um, there were many, many saints, statues of saints. Some of them were enclosed in glass coffin-like cases uh, on pillows and uh, silks and brocades. Uh, dressed with, you know, a lot of lace and jewels and seed pearls. And uh, their faces were uh, beautifully painted. Um, serene faces with just a little furrow of pain on, on the brow here. Uh, crying uh, perfect crystal tears. And uh, I, uh, I, asked question, I asked the adults questions about this. Uh, they, because, you know, they were dead, but they were also alive because people prayed to them. And um, I did not, I don't remember anybody ever, any of hearing any explanation that uh, I thought was real. And uh, I thought I could see also from the way the adults were talking to me that they, they didn't really uh, understand this either it was something of a mystery to them um, <clears throat> so all of these things were like evidence to me that there was something very mysterious going on here and i i wanted to know what it was and so i think um I think that from then on, any subject having to do with mystery, esoteric knowledge, or the spiritual uh, attracted me like a moth to, to flame. <clears throat> uh, I was six years old when we moved here, uh, coming from Brazil, a very different place. And uh, the U.S. was very foreign uh, to me and, and a little scary. Um, I was particularly struck by the smell here uh, because there are, it's almost like there is no smell, as if everything were scrubbed clean. 
and, you know, no smells, fruit or plants or humans or animals like there were in Brazil. And uh, the, the cold air conditioned supermarkets uh, with, um, where everyone kept to themselves and were quietly shopping along uh, with that uh, synthetic, vaguely rhythmic, piped-in music from the walls <laughs> under acidic fluorescent lighting felt kind of eerie. <laughs> and, and people looked at me as if I were a stranger. And I was a stranger. But I had never, no one had ever looked upon me as a stranger before. So this is how I learned about alienation. And, uh, you know, I, in Brazil, I was where I belonged. I knew I belonged there. And I did not feel welcomed here or that I belonged here. So, but, you know, as all of us experience, come to experience uh, what alienation is and uh, not belonging. But this, that's how I, this is how I first uh, was, was acquainted with it. And, uh, and this was a huge, huge influence, <laughs> prompting me to search for liberation because it is painful. <clears throat> and I think it brought me to Zen teachings. And most of my life, I have been haunted by feeling, uh, the feeling of being an alien, <clears throat> not belonging in the wrong place. And uh, many painful things come, came out of this in my life. Uh, so living with a certain level of pain is an incentive to looking for freedom, liberation. And, uh, and so this search led me to um, find solace in beauty, in reading literature, in the extreme discipline of classically, in yoga, and here to the Houston Center, <laughs> uh, trying to understand this pain and what was going on here, uh, led me to study Tibetan Buddhism, esoteric Christianity, and, and finally I came to the Houston Center. <clears throat> the most wonderful place of all. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what is so painful to all of us is that uh, tight, clenched, anxious, paralyzing feeling of uh, being a separate self. <clears throat> and uh, I've been interested in that sense of a separate self for a long time. And uh, I wanted to study it. I wanted to really get to know it because I wanted to change it and I wanted to get rid of it. <clears throat> Today, I know that that is not a good way to study anything. Um, the Tibetan Buddhism <clears throat> that I studied uh, was mostly about purification. And that, and I didn't understand that. And, I, and so it, uh, 
it reinforced the, the feeling in me that I had to get rid of, tinker, or change this sense of a separate self. Um, <clears throat> and, then, and then in those years of, of studying this separate self, the sense of a separate self, uh, in order to change it and get rid of it, uh, you, I was observing it a lot. So I'm observing the feelings and the thinking and uh, you, there's a strong element of yuck in this study. And, uh, and because of this, I got, you know, I think I got, I got sidetracked. Um, um, so that I even more strongly uh, believed that I had to uh, change it, tinker it. It's just, it's just wrong. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's very difficult to not identify with what is both inside of you and outside of you. That, that is our challenge, one of our challenges. The biggest challenge. And, um, but as you can, I think all of us know, and we can see that uh, trying to get rid of changing or tinkering with the self is not compassionate. Mm -hmm. And without compassion, uh, <coughs> There, there really is no real study. You can't study something without compassion. <clears throat> With this practice of zazen, I began to experience a different sense of being <laughs> that was not separate. And in a very natural way, I was uh, feeling connected to everyone and everything. I could more clearly distinguish viscerally uh, what that sense of separate self uh, was and um, uh, started to experience that that relentless voice in my head was not who I was. Uh, as Tenshin Zinke uh, once said, the more fully you settle with something, the more it begins to change and become transparent. It becomes other than itself, and its hitherto hidden marks reveal themselves to you. When I look closely, it looks like I am a dynamic something. I don't want to call it a process because it's not mechanical. And process, you think of something mechanical. <clears throat> As Reb, uh, as Tenshin Zinke describes, I am a conversation with, ev with everything, with life, with you. And I don't have actions of body, speech, and mind without you, and you don't have actions of body, speech, and without me. I think that uh, my day is a living mask. <clears throat> created from the experiences and consequences of the actions of this body, speech, and mind. A mask I call Maite covers the face of a vast, undefinable being interconnected with everything. And it might be, excuse me, that we all must wear a mask because perhaps behind the mask, there is countless masks. It's not one, there's not one face there, perhaps. 
Um, and also maybe the mask is the way that we can see and be with each other. In Buddha Dharma, the reality of no separate intrinsic self is taught in the Heart Sutra by Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva of Great Compassion. Great compassion, when deeply practicing Parajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five aggregates are empty and thus relieved all suffering. Five aggregates describe the constituents of how a person creates a sense of I. And this is a, uh, and, and it's also, it's uh, each aggregate presents as an object that I uh, take as a real solid, um, as real solid and outside of me to grasp, to cling to, to push away from, and to use as the root of self-identification. Basically, in order to create a sense of I, me, myself. But, you know, and this is just as it should be. Because we all need to have a sense of I am here, I am here to manifest the intentions of the actions of our body, speech, and mind. So it's okay. (laughs) So right away in the Heart Sutra. Great compassion tells us the five aggregates have no separate identity, no solidity, and no essence. They they are co-arising dependent on other co-arisings. And so the very first lines of the Heart Sutra is telling us there's no such thing as a separate self. Um, The Chinese, in translating uh, shunyata, the Sanskrit word for emptiness translated as a character for sky. So the Chinese translate all phenomena, the five aggregates are like the sky, expansive, boundless, unlimited, open, and released. When we look closely at into the aggregates, it looks like they interact with each other to form a moment of experience. Looking at a moment of experience, we can see relative causality. Uh, We can see that everything is dependent on everything else. The table in front of the altar was made by Reverend Yazan Day Johnson, who's born in such and such in place of such and such appearance. And one day came to Houston and um, decided to study Zen. And the wood came from a tree that grew in such and such a place under such and such a climate condition, climatic conditions, cut by such and such a person, and ended up in Dave Johnson's hands. And it's here now as our altar, and it carries great value and meaning. And it will go on that way endlessly. The recognition of the co-arising of everything bears strongly to mind that every intentional action of body, speech, and mind has 
and effect has consequences. <clears throat> An important point to remember that we often overlook is that uh, words of anger, I might say to you, I can see greatly affect you. But we overlook that those words of anger that I say to you has an, even, has an effect on me and maybe even a greater effect on me. So the actions of our body, speech, and mind have endless consequences, creating not only this world, but future worlds. When you look closely at a moment, you can see that it flickers. It's here, and then it's not here. And then when it comes back, it's a little bit different, even if it's one close succession after the other. So a moment is ephemeral. It can't be pinned down, but it has tremendous consequences. Every phenomena is a composite made up of these karmic consequences that when we look closely, continually break down into something else without ever reaching an essence and identity. Just like the physicist who looking for the smallest unit of matter Atoms have subatomic particles, protons, electrons, neutrons, with subparticles that are called point particles of leptons and quarks, and quarks are composed of prions and bosons. And now we're probably entering the realm of not having an instrument or a calculation model to measure anything smaller. A few years ago, Every few years, we find yet another smaller unit of matter. And uh, why would we ever come to the bottom of this? <laughs> this is how we are infinitesimally, inextricably interconnected <laughs> with everything. It's, it is boundless, like the Chinese describe. It's an endless sky released and open. <clears throat> and searching and not finding the essence of anything, and especially not ourselves, we are released from the prison of separate self. In fact, we have the best of the two truths, the, the relative truth, that we are unique points of view, precious in that. <laughs> And in the absolute, inextricably connected and at home in everything. I hope I come, we come to see with our human eyes <laughs> the responsibility of our all togetherness. <laughs> our focus would expand beyond the narrow preoccupation of separate self to recognize correspondence with more and more beings. It is said that a Buddha is someone whose sense of self includes all beings. <clears throat> Do you think that this is why the interlocutor of the Heart Sutra is Avalokiteshvara, 